In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. While we're talking about Romania, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yes. <laughs> Why is Romania the joyous country we all want to emulate? <laughs> Lots of vampires, few kids. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and this week I am joined by Vox policy writer Jerusalem Dempsis. Hello. And future perfect editor Brian Walsh. Hello. And today we are going to be talking about population growth, which is slowing down in America today and across uh, developed or industrialized economies. Brian, you just wrote a great piece for the Future Perfect newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to, about the latest population numbers. And they're pretty striking. So uh, walk me through what happened to U.S. population in 2021 and, and what seems to be underlying that. Well, what happened to U.S. population in 2021 really is it barely grew. In fact, between July 2020 and July 2021, the country's population grew just 0.1%. That amounted to about 392,665 people, and that's both births over deaths but also net migration. That's the lowest numeric increase since the Census Bureau began making these kind of population estimates back at the beginning of the 20th century. And on a percentage basis, it's the lowest growth in the nation's history, you know, and, and this is happening for a number of reasons. I mean, we have an aging population that's, you know, that increases mortality. Obviously, we have the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else that comes along with it. But really, the, the long term and primary cause of this is just a gradually declining fertility rate. As fewer Americans have children, those who do have kids tend to have smaller families. You know, the total fertility rate in the U.S., which is an estimate of the average total number of children any one woman will have over a lifetime declined from 2.12 in 2007 to 1.64 in 2020. And that number is particularly important because there's something called the uh, replacement rate. That's basically how many kids a woman has to have to replace the population that immigration. That's 2.1. So we are now well below that. So without immigration, you know, American population would be declining. And this isn't just like a U.S. thing, right, Brian? No, this is pretty global. Basically, almost everywhere around the world, you're seeing fertility rates fall. Where, how far that's that's gone really depends on where you're looking at. In Europe, it's fallen even more drastically than the U.S. and East Asian countries like Japan, China, the home of the the, the one child policy. It's fallen quite drastically. There's really only a few countries, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa, where you still see fairly high fertility rates, where you still see really large levels of population growth projected in the decades ahead. But even there, you know, it's on the decline. And there are UN projections that suggest we could be seeing declining global population before the end of the 21st century. How much is this sort of trickling down to to developing countries? Since like one pattern that that has existed for a long time is countries grow, uh, you need to rely less on sort of your children as a safety net and also health uh, maternal and child health improves. And so you don't have to have as many kids to to have the number of surviving kids you might want. And so sort of fertility slows as they develop. Do we have a sense of why like Nigerian population growth is is not enough to sort of plug the hole as as Europe and the US and, and Japan are, are kind of struggling? Well, I think mostly because you're, you're seeing fertility decline there as well, not as fast. It's It's remaining more a little more vibrant than it is in the rest of the world. But, you know, that's still not enough to really offset the loss that you're seeing or the slowdown you're seeing in most of the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, we're still seeing population growth increase. I mean, we're nearing 8 billion people altogether in the world. But when you're not, when you're even seeing that begin to trend down in, in those countries where, you know, it's, it's the same factors you're seeing elsewhere as income increases, this is a pretty universal law. Uh, no matter what country, almost no matter what culture, as income increases, people have fewer kids. As you know, they, they don't need the kids for for work as much. Um, they put more resources to each individual 
child, you have more, I think, gender equality, you have more freedom to choose uh, what kind of reproduction you want. But that's going to happen there as well. Now, it's going to be strange because we're going to see continuing large population growth in a country like Nigeria, even as places like Europe, North America to a lesser extent, are really slowing down and even shrinking, which will raise interesting questions about, you know, what should we be thinking about migration? How should we be thinking about connecting those economies that are going to need workers with those places that will have a surplus of younger workers? But that's kind of an additional issue. But when we look at population, yes, fertility plays a big role, but thinking about migration is something that's really important too. And I think our listeners' intuitions on population growth may not be aligned with, um, you know, some of ours. I, I think that like a lot of people don't really have a sense of why it's important to have a growing population. Um, and there are actually a lot of people with intuitions that, you know, overpopulation is bad, whether it's for the climate or just this idea of, you know, we don't need to be overconsuming. People should just like have, you know, one or two kids maybe and then just, uh, you know, try to live more conservatively and that's a better way to live. Um, I just want to like plug for reasons why you should care about population growth. I mean, one of the big ones is just that more people means more ideas. Those kinds of ideas uh, result in things like scientific innovation. There's good research showing that increasing populations lead to kind of those innovations that can be life-saving. You know, obviously, like we've seen over the last year, the importance of scientific innovation um, when it comes to vaccines. And, uh, you know, that's just one big thing that's really hard to get a handle on. But even as people, you know, for those of us who have been able to work from home, I know that there are differences on, on, on productivity changes and whether or not working from home really changes that. But in general, like you can experience in your own life that when you're around a lot of people and you're talking to them and you're having an exchange of ideas, like that can accelerate your own thinking. And that has macro implications, even if in your own life, like you don't invent, you know, a cancer <laughs> uh, <laughs> cure, like everyone doing that repeatedly over the course of, you know, hundreds of years is what leads to big increases in the quality of life of people. And there are other reasons too, of course, there's also that as a population gets older, there can be like real implications for democracies. Of course, if you have a much older population and you don't have young people that can help take care of them, um, that puts a massive burden on the state. Like if your grandparents, you know, there are four grandparents alive and only one grandchild, like there's not enough within that family network to support everyone. And that leads to, you know, breakdowns in social ties, of course, but also just, you know, the government often can't sustain those individuals. And if it does, if, you know, democracies like the United States and, and more developed nations begin taking on the preferences of an increasingly aging population, that can mean that we're not taking big risks. Like we're not trying to go to the moon. We're not taking, uh, you know, not preferencing uh, long-term concerns like climate change or long-term risks that we, we think are really important. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons to care about this that I think often are, are gone um, under, under discussed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what you said about the culture of innovation, what you said about sort of the way that a country can change as its aging profile changes is really important. I mean, we're seeing this look at the U.S. government. We see basically have a gerontocracy in the White House and in Congress to a certain extent. That has an impact on the kind of policies that are put forward. Uh, when we don't have more young scientists, more young engineers, more young innovators, that's going to hold us back in the future. And I think another thing to keep in mind here is that there's there's a gap, I think, between what we're actually seeing in terms of the number of kids couples are having versus the number that they say they either want or they kind of think they should have. Basically, like you'll look at this sort of preferred family size, or maybe that's the the expected, what they think is the right family size. Americans for some time have said, you know, like 2.5 kids per couple, basically. That's significantly higher than about the 1.64 we're currently seeing with, with total fertility. So that to me indicates, you know, some of that might be due to old sort of lagging notions about how big a family should be, what you might be seeing on TV from the past and so forth. But I do think there's a gap here, and that gap might be due to people feeling they can't afford children, they can't afford it based off money, they can't afford it based off, off time, which might come in part from this idea that parenting is extremely time-intensive. And you know, my, my wife and I, we have one kid, four and a half years old. Yes, he is very time-intensive, but you know, it, not so much that like, yeah, I couldn't be doing other things too at the same time, but I do think that is an image that's out there, and that does sort of keep people from, from maybe having the sort of potentially having the lives they want. All while foregrounding the fact that, you know, people should be able to choose exactly how many kids they want, that they don't want kids at all, and so forth. But when you look to the future, I do worry about an aging culture that will not have workers to straight off take care of them. I mean, actually work in the nursing homes and other areas where they'll be needed, but also to just give new blood, new life to to the, the culture, to to the country. And that's kind of the path that the U.S. is on and most of the other countries in the world. 
two things I think are really interesting to pull apart there, Brian. And and one is that uh, for a long time, I kind of was like, oh, yeah, I, I'm kind of generally aware that developed nations are seeing this fertility decline. But what's really striking is that this is happening in most countries in the world. Like India is below replacement rate right now mm-hmm. when it comes to fertility rates. And that means that immigration can't solve a lot of these problems. For a long time, I was just like, you know, OK, that's great. We should just liberalize our immigration laws. And then places like uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and Western Europe can take in more immigrants. It'll solve these problems. And of course, in increase the quality of life for people who are wanting to leave those nations. And, and then the second thing that I think is interesting is, I, you know, I think unlike maybe maybe both of you, I'm not really sure, Dylan, but I think I'm more skeptical about the data around how many children people say that they want. I think, A, like when someone asks you, what is the ideal number of children? I'm not really sure what that means. It's like wrapped up in a lot of things. I know there's more granular data where people ask women, especially about their intentions, how many uh, children they intend to have. And there's a gap there. But in general, my sense is like, I, I kind of follow the, the school of thought of revealed preferences, which, you know, that that idea, that term in econ is just like your consumption patterns are the best way to measure consumer preferences, um, not to what you tell people are your preferences. That's not to say that I think that like, I think it's obviously true that if women could say at the end of their lives, there's clearly there's a, there's a gap there in what they're saying they wish they had, what they actually do have. But I think the question is, were they able to get something else they thought was more important in that moment? Were they saying, you know, right now I would love to have my own private pool, but obviously I think living in DC and like a place right. where that is not possible is more important to me than like moving to Nebraska or Tulsa and being able to afford a house where that's possible. And that's like a little bit of a trivial example, obviously like, you know, having your kids is like a big, important issue. And it's like, clearly there's some data suggesting that it's impacting end of life happiness of people who don't have the number of children that they said they wanted to have. But I think that I'm like more skeptical than many of the natalists in this space that there's this massive gap in preferences and that people are doing something that is widely outside of what would make them happy. I think that that also gets into sort of the question of how this interacts with housing costs, which is something you write about a lot, Jerusalem. And there's kind of an intuitive story that you can think of and that I think comes easily to mind to people like us who live in cities, like childcare in New York and D.C. and San Francisco can cost like ten, twenty thousand dollars a year. Affording uh, an apartment with two bedrooms is is a huge burden, let alone affording one with like three or four or however many you need for a family with with a large number of kids. And so you can tell a causal story where high housing prices are are driving down people's ability to afford children and thus their desire to have children. But there's also some degree of sorting. Uh, there's a good Richard Florida piece on this. And he was pointing out that, you know, cities tend to have higher education levels, which is correlated with having fewer kids. People with graduate degrees have significantly fewer kids than people who just have a high school degree, for instance. It's also correlated with sort of a lack of religiosity, which which has effects on how many kids you have. It's correlated with sort of political leanings, which has some correlation to how many, how many kids you have. Uh, you're not likely to not have a kid due to climate change if you don't think climate change is real, and you're a lot likelier to think climate change is real if you live in a city. <laughs> So, yeah, the demography is such an interesting field of study, but my takeaway from from the more digging I try to do is I don't know, like, about the effect size of any of this stuff. I don't know. I I don't feel confident about the effect of of housing prices. I don't feel confident that giving money to people would cause them to have more kids. Um, Maybe you guys are less nihilistic than I am, but. Well, I think the flip side of that is it really underscores how difficult it is to craft any kind of policy that we can be sure will really make a difference around this. I mean. You can say, well, you know, the U.S. doesn't give a lot of aid to families. That's absolutely true. Northern European countries obviously give a lot more aid, much more of a welfare state. They do have somewhat higher fertility rates, but they're still below replacement level. They're not, you're not seeing a huge change. It's more along the margin. That tends to be the case. These solutions tend to be very expensive per child. You're not getting a lot of return, which to me says that it does go beyond economics. It goes to culture, maybe. It goes to questions around opportunity costs. You know, as as you mentioned, you know, higher levels of education, higher levels of wealth. Part of that is that that means that if you're taking time off to take care of kids, the opportunity cost, if you're a higher wage earning, if you're you're more educated, is going to be higher. That might be something that pushes you against actually having that kid or having that second kid or having that third kid, for instance. And so if I'm a government and I I don't want to change this, I don't know what levers to really push very easily. I mean, that's in part why a country like the U.S., which can, you know, in theory at least, really bring in a lot more migrants. I mean, that's that's an individual solution for the US. Not every country can do that or has the culture to do that. But, you know, when it comes to actually encouraging people to have more kids, um, it's it's tough. I'm not really sure there's a there's a secret lever to, to work on doing that. You can do the reverse. For sure we've seen that, but not so much really to to 
effectively and sustainably have pro-natalist policies. And I would say here, the important thing to note is like, I think a lot of our listeners would say like, oh, I could imagine having more kids or or having kids earlier if like housing was cheaper or something like that. But the the, the macro point also is that um, it's not just that there is this like so-called fertility gap between how many kids people say they want to have and how many they do have. There's also been a decline in how many kids people say they even want to have over time. Mm. And that's also something that's not really gone well explained, which is, you know, that's much harder and also like arguably like not in the purview of government to be trying to convince people to have more children. I think there's like obviously a much stronger case to be saying like we should help people have the number of children that they actually do want to have. And like within that, I mean, Dylan, you mentioned housing. There's this paper by a UCLA professor William Clark about whether women delay family formation in expensive housing markets. And the top line finding is that, you know, they do delay it around um, first births by three to four years are delayed in housing markets. But when you look at overall completed fertility, which is when you look at the end of like women's childbearing years, how many kids they end up having, that appears not to be changed at all. So like, you know, there are reasons why we may want to make it easier for women to have children when they want to have them. Perhaps that's earlier on in their lives. But I, you know, I think that kind of research underscores that, yeah, there's, there are things you can do to make life easier for people, which you should do, like housing should be less expensive, but that may not solve the macro problem here that we're trying to, to engage with. And that's important to remember, like part of this is actually due to what we would think of as, as positive outcomes, positive pro-social outcomes in the sense that teen pregnancy obviously has gone down really significantly. That's had an impact on the overall fertility rate. I don't think anyone would suggest what are, we, what are the policies we can create to bring that back up. I mean, that's a, that's a good thing, but that plays a role too. And I do also wonder, you know, over time, conceptions about family size, conception about what's quote unquote normal will, will change too. When you see fewer large families, when you see more couples that don't have kids, that becomes less of an outlier, more of the norm that gets baked into the next generation. So I wonder what, you know, what my, my son, uh, you know, when he's an adult, like, will, will he have kids? He'll probably be growing up in an environment where he's much, much likely to encounter large families than, than I did growing up in the Pennsylvania suburbs, you know, and that's, I think that's going to have an effect too. We're going to take a break now, uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about policies that might affect population and might be able to get us back on track for population growth, if that's something we want. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. All right, we are back. So we've been talking about sort of slowing population growth in the U.S., in Europe, uh, across the world, uh, relative to to where things were 10 or, or 20 years ago. The fact that this is sort of a global experience uh, makes me somewhat skeptical about uh, policy levers being able to change it dramatically. But Jerusalem, you've done some thinking about like what a pro-natalist policy, particularly a pro-natalist policy that's that's not sort of coercive toward women would look like. Walk me through some of how you're thinking about that now. Yeah. So obviously there are things like cash transfers and increased social insurance networks that can have some sorts of modest effects on fertility rates, and especially earlier rates. But 
largely what it seems like uh, you could do is try to make it easier for people to get married. There's good research showing that marriage is one of the big dividing lines between people who are able to have the number of kids they want and those who end up not having the kids they want, especially in um, developed nations. And out of the Institute for Family Studies, uh, there's been a lot of research on this um, showing that that marriage is one of the big dividing lines here. And the important thing that um, Stone kind of points out is that while wealthier people get a much larger benefit out of being married um, when it comes to tax advantages than poorer people do, especially when you look at like the earned income tax credit, which is one of the um, better social uh, insurance programs <laughs> the U.S. has. Uh, you know, there there are times where you can actually get a penalty for getting married that you can lose a lot of those benefits. Um, and, you know, stuff like that like, really needs to be fixed, not just because it's like you know, bad for this specific problem, but just because like it's inherently unjust to be like disincentivizing people from an institution that gives them a lot of like personal joy and, um, you know, satisfaction and are just better outcomes for their children in many cases if they're able to have the kind of family structure that they're looking for. So things like that seem like really good. I think that like the big thing that I've taken away from a lot of my research is that yeah, there's like no silver bullet here um, for a long period of time. It appeared that in particular, increasing opportunities for women in the labor market. And also, personally, I think it's like pretty clear that like increasing education in general has led to more awareness of birth complications. And that's research that you've seen in like countries like Nigeria and other places in the world that like there are even in places where maternal mortality is really high. A lot of people are very unaware of like the very real risks of pregnancy and death that are associated with that. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that are wrapped up in this that are creating, I think, both a cultural norm that could become more sticky, even as in recent years, we don't see the same like trend between, you know, higher educated women in developed nations and not having the children they want. So I think that there's like a lot wrapped up in here. I think the governments can be doing things like cash transfers. We did see research, you know, right following uh, the pandemic's hit in March, April and May. In June, we saw conceptions rapidly normalize. I think that's probably things like remote work and cash transfers that we saw during the pandemic happening. But again, like, you know, that's not going to solve the whole problem. I wonder... Yeah, so not to just throw a political fireball into the middle of this discussion. <laughs> we haven't been talking about abortion, and we kind of have to talk about abortion. Um, so I think part of why it's hard to have uh, sort of discussions about population growth as a an outcome is that it inevitably gets tied up in discussions of Roe v. Wade and about sort of the correct legal regime for ending pregnancies. And I think pro-choice people have very strong moral intuitions that the government should not be regulating their reproductive decisions that flows into not being comfortable with sort of pro-natalist policies. Sort of anti-row uh, people are, are not sort of targeting something for the nation and its size. They're, they're making a moral claim about the, the moral standing of fetuses. But Given that in a few months after this podcast is recorded, the Supreme Court looks likely to overturn Roe v. Wade and allow more state-level restrictions, it's worth asking what that would do to to fertility. And to be clear, like this is not I, I identify as pro-choice. Uh, my wife worked in reproductive rights for for a long time, but there was a paper a few years ago using trying to estimate what. Uh, access to abortion would look like after an overturned row from Caitlin Myers, Rachel Jones, and Ushma Opadier. And their estimate is that uh, the abortion rate would fall by a third um, and that that would prevent around 100,000 to 140,000 women from, from getting abortions. That could have a significant, at least short-term, effect on fertility. Um, that doesn't seem good to me, especially as it's it's an effect on fertility of people who have like selected to be less interested in being parents. And it involves interfering with those people's rights in a very significant way. But I'm curious what you guys think of the size of abortion as a, a factor in determining population growth rates and how it fits into sort of a politics around natalism. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that there's probably like two lanes that natalism can go towards. One, which seems increasingly popular, is this sort of like very conservative retraditionalization model, emphasis on returning to kind of core nuclear family. And often this is paired with very conservative ideology. We've seen this in Hungary under Viktor Orban and also being popularized by Tucker Carlson on Fox News and increasingly on the right. And there's like a growing intellectual tradition of of this sort of politics. Um, you know, that 
to me, be very, very bad <laughs> and not the ideal way to be approaching this problem. And I think that we'll have obviously a bunch more uh, unintended consequences. And I also think that like just, you know, the Hungary example is very mixed. I mean, what happened in Hungary? I mean, their their policy isn't designed super well. It's like a $30,000 loan. And like, if you don't actually have the number of kids they want you to have, you immediately have to pay it back. So like, <laughs> not sure they're really approaching this uh, with the best policy design, but in general, it hasn't been super successful to get them above the replacement rate. But there's also a world in which we emphasize the ability for women to have more labor market power. Uh, I think remote work creates that opportunity. I think also no longer thinking of the workplace as having to be like this like sort of nine to five work environment and this like really inflexible and that bosses also reducing the salience of like putting in a ton of FaceTime and showing up to happy hours to the ability to advance and get, have, you know, advancements in your career. Like all those things are really difficult problems that people have been tackling for a long time, especially in feminist spaces. And that's, I mean, one of the big things that is clear from the, um, you know, declining fertility rate research is that one of the big problems is that a lot of people are deferring having children to an age and a lot of them like will say and like I mean there was a big theory for a long time that there would be a catch up that like people were like oh we're just delaying it we're going to college we're getting established in our careers and then eventually we'll have the number of kids that we say they want but obviously um, there is some biological realities here at some point like you cannot have children and so a it seems that like some people are running into that and making it possible for people to have kids while they're in college, making college less of a priority to have good access to good paying jobs. Like all of these things are are feminist priorities and progressive priorities in general, and I think could have a, a big impact on this problem. But it does seem to me like that is a much harder sell politically to engage in, uh, not only because the coalitions that this would involve are are very tricky. Um, we can't even get a child tax credit passed when Mitt Romney um, is the, the one that Mitt Romney is on board with. So, you know, that's obviously uh difficult to do. But um, yeah, the alternative is obviously very dire. Yeah, I think I think the politics and, and clashing values around abortion aside, I, I don't even think it would initially have a huge impact on mm. on this fertility picture overall, in part because, you know, we were talking about um, you know, how, how delayed rates of partnering up of marriaging marriage plays a big role here. I mean, so even if you had that taken away, that right, you know, you still have the issues that are how do you how, how do you get people married? How do you sort of find that earlier on in life and possibly change around how we work might make some of that easier. But I'm kind of skeptical, to be totally honest. And, but I also think it's interesting to look at it from the lens of, you know, in the same way, like a, a good natalist policy should really be focused not just on sheer numbers, but on quality of life for the children you bring into the world, which I think also would, you know, ideally be a better pro-life perspective to take as well. It should matter not just, all right, we want to encourage people to have as many kids as possible, or if, if that's the goal, but rather, okay, what are the sort of policies that can be put in place to make sure that it's as easy as possible, that we support those children that they have, that they need for education, they have what they need for healthcare. I mean, that's a good thing, period. And whether or not that really changes the, the ball much in terms of overall fertility, overall natality, it's just better because they're kids and they really deserve that. And that's, that's a, a good country should be able to do that. And so maybe there's a connection there, but you know, to me, what's driving this goes a lot deeper than taking away or expanding or contracting uh, that right. And rather, it's it's up to those social changes, up to those changes in how we, we work, how we connect with each other that just um, are hard to shift, even with the, the most uh, Supreme Court in the land, I suppose. Yeah. And the, and the political distribution of this stuff is really interesting, too. I, I remember when I was reading some of this stuff, I remembered uh, Hillary Clinton post-2016 law saying that uh, she won the places that are diverse and dynamic and moving forward and growing. And then in 2020, we like realized that, you know, Trump does much better in counties with higher birth rates. And uh, the difference is extremely large. Uh, um, this is Lyman Stone's research showing that the most pro-Biden counties have total fertility rates almost 25 percent lower than pro-Trump counties. And so, like, that's like also like this plays into the politics of this, too. Right. Like, you know, for now, like, obviously, like it is, you know, the GDP of these cities and also they're obviously agglomeration effects. We've talked about a lot that draw people to those places. But if the center of, of growth is no longer happening there, that changes pretty drastically the makeup of the nation and the political realities uh, of these places. And also, like, you know, obviously, it's if if you do see children following in the political footsteps of their of their parents and their peers in these increasingly politically segregated counties, then, uh, you know, it is very likely that you can have much more of a conservative turn um, down the line. And that has not been fully realized because, you know, these people are still still children at this point. So, uh, you know, I think that that all plays into a lot of how the politics of this is going to play out. Yeah, it's really noticeable. I mean, in New York City, where I live, fewer babies were born in 2020, which is the most recent year we have data. 
than any year on record for the city. I mean, that's that's startling, and and that really I think drives home some of the issues around housing costs and the issues around the, the sense of opportunity cost that goes into having kids. But if that spreads out and, you know, you see more population, more, more people being born in places like certain areas of Texas, where while San Francisco continues to shrink, that does say something both, I think, about the political makeup of those places, but also, you know, what are the, what are the preferences? What are the, the priorities people have in, in New York versus Dallas, say, versus San Francisco? And that's just interesting on its own. And, you know, you, you point to Lyman Stone's research a few times. She really has identified a growing gap here between conservatives and progressives, and especially between the religious and the non-religious. It was really interesting to see, I think, in some of his research that during the pandemic, people who did identify as less re- religious, more progressive, really reacted to the pandemic by saying, I'm probably going to put off having kids. You know, it's it's concerning for me. People who were more religious, more conservative, the opposite. They were like, all right, let's, let's bring the family together. Let's create larger families. If you continue to see that divergence, that is going to presage a different future for the United States. Yeah. And I mean, I think that uh, it's hard to disentangle a lot of this stuff. Obviously, I think Dylan, you said this earlier, when you have uh, folks who are predominantly liberal living in cities that have high housing costs, it's hard to figure out like what's determinative here. Is there some like <laughs> cultural thing that is leading people not to have children or is it like these these economic costs? Obviously, I think it's probably a mix of both. And that's like entrenching a specific cultural idea of uh, of how many kids you should have. Um you know, one theory that I've thought is really interesting that I that I think I buy into is this idea of a U-shaped relationship between gender equality and fertility. Um, this idea that like, you know, you have high fertility when you have really aggressive patriarchal policies and, and norms in society. And then as uh, feminism or feminist policies or more social or gender equality begins to increase, um, women have more options, opportunity costs. They can resist these kinds of norms. And thus you see fertility dropping. And then you should expect to see at some point fertility start to increase again because because gender equality makes it possible for women to exercise all of their options. There's research that this is like not happening. Uh, Stockholm University professor Martin Kolk looks into this and he finds that there's no evidence of this U-shaped curve, um, though it is true that, you know, the lowest fertility is found in societies where he says, quote, some public sphere gender equality exists and uh, where women are increasingly equal in the labor market, but where quality within the household is low with most responsibility falling on women. So there's like this, like, obviously really negative space where like, women have a lot of opportunities in the labor market, but then like, quote, are doing a second shift when they get home, um, which means they're much less likely to want to have children because that's just like having two jobs. And, you know, my personal perspective is that like we have not reached like this crossover point where like uh, life has become better enough at the home to like justify this, especially as when you look at higher income women in these developed nations, like the opportunity cost is really large. Like you have a lot of money uh, often or you have a high education. You can like have other things that fulfill you other than having children. And if the costs are really high and you're of course, you're becoming more educated as to the physical costs of pregnancy and, and things like that, like there's no question that that has like some impact on those choices. Um, I think that this becomes obviously very complicated when you see that this is happening, of course, for also for women who are not having all those options as well. So I think that's, again, speaks to the point that this is not one silver bullet or one answer to what's going on. Yeah. Well, and I I think like we, yeah, we might not be on the other end of that curve yet. Um, One of the more dispiriting findings in, in recent labor economics is Henry Clevin at Princeton and a few other folks have done lifespan analyses of incomes for mothers and fathers right before and right after having a kid. So what is the event of having a kid do their incomes? And sort of almost irrespective of state welfare regime, um, there's an enormous drop in uh, incomes for women, no drop in the incomes for men. And for women, it takes a, a considerable length of time to catch back up, uh, sometimes as long as a decade. And the particulars differ from country to country, but the the fundamentals seem fairly universal across uh, developed countries. And so to some extent, like some of this seems less mysterious to me in that we both are at a time where compared to 60 years ago, the people with the uteruses have more control over how the uteruses are used, but also they continue to pay an enormous economic penalty uh, for, for having children relative to everybody else. And to some degree, it's rational to respond to that by just having fewer children. Um, and that's not the entire story. Uh, obviously, that's a simplistic summary of the incentives. But 
it's partly a frustrating dynamic because I have no idea how to get past it. That that usually for many social policy problems in the United States, I can say, hey, like Finland does this well, or you know, New Zealand actually figured out a cool way around this. No one seems to have figured out a way around this, and it seems really important to try. The culture of it can get so weird. It's, I mean, Pope Francis uh, made a little news last week when he. <laughs> basically was taking childless couples to task for being selfish, uh, for not having kids, but having too many pets, which coming from the pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church <laughs> is the ultimate do as I say, not as I do kind of situation. But in the past, that might have actually meant something. That might have actually moved people in some kind of way. Increasingly, I don't really think that's the case. And, and you know, you're absolutely right, Dylan. Like, I, I look around this a lot, and there's no silver bullet. You know, you, you, are you improve gender equality. That's good for improving gender equality. But you still have the issues around opportunity cost. I mean, that's not going to suddenly flip it because it does take cost. I mean, I, sometimes I want to name my, my son's middle name, like opportunity cost, cause that's how it feels. Sure. But like, <laughs> that's just a part of, of, of parenting. I would ideally hope the state can help more, but I really do think it's ultimately a reflection of what people want out of their lives. Now, things could get really weird in the future as technology changes. Uh, the Stanford bioethicist Hank really had a really fascinating book a few years ago called the end of sex, where he basically thought that, you know, he sort of looking at things like CRISPR gene editing, a situation in the future where we don't need sexual intercourse to reproduce. People could, I mean, if not clone themselves, I mean, sort of have kids in all kinds of different ways. Age would no longer be the limit that it is. Biology would no longer be the limit it is now. Who knows? Maybe we'll enter that very strange, brave new world that will turn things around in some kind of way. But, you know, in the world we live in right now, this this feels fairly locked in. And that's another thing with demography. What happens now will have enormous impacts on what will happen 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. It's like a big battleship, very hard to turn. And so governments should probably be thinking about how they deal with a world where population is slowing down, even shrinking and aging, as much time they're spending trying to think about how to, how to boost that. I would say, too, there's this, there's this paper by some folks in Germany, Lithuania and Belarus on re- retraditionalization as a pathway to escape um, lowest low fertility. And it's really concerning because there's this like line in there about how like basically they find that in Eastern Europe that the lower general gender equality might have offered a way to reach higher fertility rates. <laughs> and it's like extremely depressing. And it's also like really concerning because that's obviously the easiest path. <laughs> like it's not easy to institute a bunch of feminist policies and family forward policies. It is, does not seem that hard to kind of uh, return back towards more uh, patriarchal norms, especially when, you know, they don't even seem to be that far away now. I mean, we talked earlier about the divisions of household labor, and there was a survey from Gallup, I think, in like a couple of years ago about how the young cohort, like the 18 to 34 age range, um, was no more likely to divide household chores equitably than older couples. And it's just like, you know, how much of this is really possible to get you to the other side of the U-shaped curve if it even exists? God, yeah, it's it's like the the academic version of those return memes that like fascists post on Twitter. <laughs> we must go back to castles and swords and lots of babies. Right. That's this is not the the, the this is not the policy of the weeds. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but I think that does. Yeah, the the sort of thinking in extremes comes up a lot in this. Um, when I was looking at at research on the effect of abortion regulations on completed fertility. One, it's really hard to know because as as Brian was explaining earlier, sort of the difference between how many kids you have right now versus how many kids you have total is really significant and is really hard to measure. Maybe an abortion regulation affects how many kids you have by like moving it up, but not the total number. But it seems like in Romania, which had by far the most draconian and horrendous abortion ban, I think anywhere in the world in modern memory, uh, under the Ceausescu communist regime, it getting rid of that in the 90s did seem to greatly increase the number of abortions and, and reduce completed fertility, which you would expect. That was an incredibly extreme uh, mm-hmm. policy. Um, if anyone uh, listening has not seen the movie Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, uh, it is it is a very brutal to watch but very good movie about about that regime. Um, but the same study sort of found very muted effects of everything like less than that. And that includes a lot of countries in Europe, Germany and France. Generally, uh, you can't get an abortion after the first trimester, but you can in the first trimester. Those kind of regimes don't seem to do much relative to sort of free abortion, regardless of trimester. And so, yeah, it's it's a, a tricky topic where the most like brutal extreme, no one in their right mind would advocate this <laughs> policy seem to have very strong effects and the like sensible middle of the road things seem to struggle to, to have any impact. 
Yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard to talk about this without making it sound as if you're judging people's choices one way or another. You know, yeah, judging for not having kids, judging for having too many kids. Everyone has an opinion around this. I mean, we have we talked a little bit about the climate change sense. You know, actual childlessness, which is different than having fewer children, is on the rise. There is some sense that some of that is driven by young people who are very worried about climate change, both in the sense that they're worried that having kids will add to it, but also really apocalyptic fears that their kids will be born and, and grow up in a world that is so terrible because of climate change it would make life not worth living. That's that's not a position I agree with personally, and I, I don't think the science really backs that up. But, you know, that's that's part of the the thought process that's going on here. And that's 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 again that drives home how difficult it is to change because climate change might be up there with uh with natality in terms of being a really hard policy issue to to shift and one will have really long-term effects so i would expect that to continue in the future well we've been talking about some something that the u.s and europe have in common which is that we are having fewer babies but for the white paper we're going to talk about something that separates us which is uh europe being much more equal in terms of income and wealth than the u.s so uh stay tuned for that after this break Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in your Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. All right, we are back. Uh, so this week's uh, white paper is very uh, succinctly and smartly titled. It is called Why is Europe More Equal Than the United States? I love a white paper that just states a question and tries to answer it. The authors are uh, Thomas Blanchett, Lucas Chancel, and Amory Gethin. And the, the surprise answer to why the U.S. is less equal than Europe is that it was already uh, more unequal. There was already more inequality in the United States before government redistribution. So a common view that I learned in school and, and is sort of taken for granted in a lot of policy discussions is that the United States and Europe are pretty unequal before you talk about taxes and social programs, that sort of before everything is redistributed, they're kind of anarchic market societies. But uh, after that, Europe has so much uh, redistributive infrastructure. They have much higher taxes than the United States. They have universal health care. They have uh, child allowances, uh, child care, all, all kinds of other programs. After you take that into account, the U.S. Uh, looks a lot more unequal, but the European countries have, have equaled themselves out. And the argument in this paper is that that's mistaken and that you see an increase in inequality in the U.S. relative to Europe before you look at tax and transfers, and that there's a great deal of redistribution in the United States. And indeed, they argue uh, a greater share of redistribution in the United States than there is in Europe. Uh, the U.S. has a very progressive income tax. It doesn't have a lot of regressive taxes, uh, like value-added taxes that are common in Europe. And so the takeaway is that pre-distribution, which is a common term for sort of the distribution before taxes and transfers, is what explains Europe being less unequal. Um, they have to make some sort of interesting assumptions in, in this paper, but, but first I wanted to, to open up to you guys. What did you find interesting or, or compelling about this? Just to put a couple of the numbers from this paper on there. In 2017, they find that the bottom 50% in the U.S. earned about 12,300 euros in the U.S. and 21,600 euros in Northern Europe and 14,600 euros in Western Europe. And that's pre-distribution. So the before tax and transfer, that's like a massive difference, especially when you look at Northern Europe. And then of the 27 countries that they look at in the paper, the U.S. ranks third in terms of average national income per adult, but is 19th in average national income of the poorest 50%. So there's just like a, a you know, I think we, we have some intuitions about the scale of the difference in inequality, 
But when you look at it in comparison to these these other nations, it becomes like pretty uh, striking. And I think one thing that really shocked me in this paper was um, not just kind of like the difference in inequality here. And I think that the, the finding that Dylan, you outlined is really interesting, but also that low income groups have benefited a ton more in Europe from macroeconomic growth than um, low income groups in the United States. The average income of the bottom 50 percent grew positively in Europe while it stagnated in the U.S. And then for the bottom 30 percent of the population in the U.S., it actually declined. And, you know, I think the common story is, uh, for uh, for a lot of policymakers is that you know, yes, there's a lot of inequality, but, you know, it's still a growing pie. So everyone's still getting generally like trying to get in, getting somewhat richer, even if it's not in real incomes and nominal incomes or, or, you know, that's happening. But the idea that like the bottom 30 percent in the U.S. has a declining share of that growth, I think, is like really important and, and really striking in this paper. So one one piece of uh, so one caveat I wanted to, to throw in to this uh, that I saw some some folks making on Twitter and we'll, we'll link one of the critiques uh, in the show notes. Um, but was that a huge share of government spending is healthcare, and how you distribute healthcare across uh, the income spectrum really affects the story here. So David Brady, who's a sociologist at UC Riverside, pointed out that uh, the the assumption in the paper is that public health expenditure, so expenditure on things like Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera, is assumed to be distributed lump sum to everyone in the population. And so that's a fairly equal way of distributing it. It means a higher uh, sort of percentage relative to people's existing income is going to people at the bottom. And so it, it makes sort of health regimes look very redistributive. And the U.S. spends a ton more on healthcare than any other country. And so that makes the U.S. look like it's distributing a lot of money toward the bottom. And it's true that what we do have in terms of, of public spending on healthcare is pretty downweighted. Uh, Medicaid does not provide healthcare for everybody. It, it provides healthcare for, for the poorest Americans. But this seems to sort of imply that the, the fact that the U.S. has like a really bizarre and wasteful healthcare system um, <laughs> means that we are more generous toward poor people uh, than European countries. And I think Brady has a point that, that that doesn't seem qualitatively like the right way to understand that. But all that being said, my assumptions about inequality were diametrically opposed to this paper going into it. And uh I would love to see how robust the findings are to sort of different ways of looking at healthcare, but it definitely sort of rattled my baseline understanding of what's different about our economies. It's a really fascinating paper and also makes me wonder, you know, if your aim is to increase equality, economic equality within the United States, well, what's the lever that you then pull on if you believe this? You know, because, all right, you you have a more progressive taxation sort of redistribution system and maybe with the caveat that you mentioned about healthcare spending. It seems like the crux here is that the U.S. has been very, very, very bad at actually ensuring that low-income groups have good, well-paying jobs. Europe has been better. Well, if we can't necessarily fix that via redistribution in this kind of way, then then what what can we do? You know, are there examples we can take from Europe? Are there changes that are more fundamental? But but those seem even harder to pull off than actually just trying to continue to tweak the tax system, continue to try to tweak things like stimulus. It, it obviously left me feeling a little more pessimistic about that possibility for the future. Yeah. And I, I would say, too, it's like basically right now in the U.S., the top one percent faces like a tax rate of greater than 30 percent, which is like, you know, roughly equal to what's happening in, in Western Northern Europe. Um, but the bottom income groups are taxed at an average rate that's like twice as small in the U.S. than it is in Europe, which is what's going on there with with progressive taxation. And and I agree. I mean, like at some level, I guess like it doesn't you know, we could continue, uh, you know, doing more and more, uh, you know, progressive taxation. But I think, you know, there are obviously there are some some costs uh, uh, associated with that. And also like there's there's obviously some Something else here that's important, like it's important that people have access to good paying jobs, not just because of the, you know, uh, monetary uh, uh, differences, but also because like there's power that kind of underlies that statistic. Like what is it in society that's going on that allows individuals to access the gains to growth or to feel more, you know, potentially more politically and socially um, powerful relative to the 1% in their own countries? I mean, that seems like it has like political ramifications as well, as well as um, just individual people's. I, I'm not super bought into the whole like dignity of work thesis, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's like completely bereft of, 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 of meaning. And so, you know, it seems like it's important that people don't feel like the only thing that's happening is that, you know, um, we're taking from other people people and giving to them, it seems important that they feel like they have a lot of agency. But, you know, if you could fix it through uh, taxation, feels fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it also loops a little bit back into what we were talking about in the first uh, half of the program, which is that without those good paying jobs for, for everyone, including those who are at the, the poorest 50% of the population, that probably slows 
family formation that probably slows marriage and that slows feeling that you can support children. So, hey, if you care about a pro-natalist policy, you want to see that continue to grow, then maybe this would be something that you should be focusing on as a policymaker. That's actually uh, it's a really good point. It, like also um, one of the theories that I saw when looking into the natalism stuff is that there's um, a theory that there's a matching problem, that there's like people are having trouble finding people at the time of life that they uh, that ha- don't have, you know, debt that they're carrying, that have a good job, that are ready to get married. They like often culturally now, like many people treat marriage as like the end of a certain part of their life rather than the beginning. So they're like, you know, once I'm financially stable, I'll get married. I'm not going to do that beforehand. Uh, I'm not going to have kids until that happens. And so if you don't have access to good paying jobs, that makes it difficult for people to match um, with one another and get into these long term relationships that are conducive to to family planning. Um, so, you know, yeah, this definitely plays into that. It, it makes me even more interested in, in one of my my longtime bugaboos, which is wage boards, that if you look at the structure of labor markets in Europe, often they have collectively bargained or otherwise sort of government enforced minimum wage standards by industry and per position. So it's not just that there's a minimum wage for all jobs. If you're like a retail worker who's with X years of experience, there's a minimum wage you have to be paid. If you're a manufacturing worker in a certain industry, there's a minimum wage you have to be paid. And that seems to sort of raise wages in uh, in a European context. And I think for years, my my thinking was, this might be good, but you know, Europe is mostly more equal because they tax and spend more. So maybe the U.S. just needs to, to tax and spend more. Um, but if the pre-distribution side is more important, then, then doing some more thinking about what wage boards could look like in the U.S. context and, and sort of ha- having a more structured pay schedule for the whole economy, whether that would be a, a good reform or, or just like add tons of costs with little benefit. I'm not I'm not totally sold either way, but uh, but it's definitely sort of a huge difference between how we think about our labor markets. I'm still stuck on bugaboo. What's a bugaboo? <laughs> What's a bugaboo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just like a, a thing you're interested in, a, a thing you keep coming back to or harp on. It's always it's... learning here on the weeds. All right. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because, I mean, not to totally contradict myself, but of course, the fact that Europe has, you know, these this greater levels of, of equality, including better paying jobs for those in the lower 50% of income, hasn't, of course, turned that place into a huge bursting continent with lots and lots of kids. So maybe that won't solve it either. We have not solved the baby bus. <laughs> <laughs> I was just imagining a, a Europe bursting with babies and it was a strange image. Uh, yeah. But have you seen French babies speaking French? It's great. It's the best. Oh my God. So babies speaking any other language is just, they just seem so smart. When I, when I, I know. They're, so they're smart. Better. Like, why can't my kid do that? Like, yeah, oh, English, that's it. I couldn't say bonjour at that age. That's crazy. <laughs> Anyway, that's all for us today. Thank you so much to, to Brian Walsh, Future Perfect editor, for joining us today and to Vox's Jerusalem Dempsis. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.